Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. We're reading and studying about the churches that John is communicating to in Revelation. Revelation 2 and 3, uh, there's seven letters to seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And each one of them has a special message from the Lord to them to meet them in their time. And we're going to look at Ephesus this morning And the message to Ephesus is this in a nutshell. You've lost the love you had at first. Remember, repent, and do what I've called you to do. That's the message to them, and that's the message to us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation. Uh, It's a really easy book to find. Go to the very, very end of the book. And then go back a couple of pages. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. And we're so grateful that you're here. We're so grateful that you're joining us online for this study over the next several weeks. Revelation chapter 2. A couple weeks ago, um, we talked about the, the kind of the overview of the book of Revelation to, to an extent. And one of the things I shared two weeks ago was this. If we read the book of Revelation and Jesus is not front and center, we've missed the point of the book of Revelation. Uh, The first words of the book of Revelation start with, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You could also translate it, the revelation from Jesus Christ. You could also translate it, the revelation about Jesus Christ. And I like that there's that There's that flexibility there because it is from Christ. This is a revelation from the Lord who comes to John and says, write this. It's also about Jesus. Everything in this book points to the glory of God. We get into chapter 4, we get into chapter 5, we get to 19. You get all these great heaven pictures. You get to the end of the book where the dwelling of God is with humanity. Oh my word, we're gathered around the throne of God in worship and in praise, and we're called back into this relationship that was intended in the garden. If we miss the book of Revelation, or if we read the book of Revelation, and we don't find Jesus at the center of it, we've missed the point. But remember, the book of Revelation is written with a prophetic sense to it, and it's, and it's meaning that it has future, future fulfillment and application, but part of it is also being written to the people of that time. A good outline for the book of Revelation, I believe, is the latter verses of chapter 1, where it says this. It says, therefore, verse 19, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. It's breaking this into the things, John, you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will happen. We'll talk about the will happen when we jump into chapter 4, but right now, John is recording a revelation of and from and about Jesus Christ to seven churches in Asia Minor. And these are churches who are facing a very challenging context of life. 
I love the way that Daniel Green puts this in the Moody Bible Commentary. He says, while Revelation provides much insight into events yet to transpire on earth, it was originally written to people in desperate need of faith and encouragement. And I don't know about you, but today, just as they needed faith and encouragement 2,000 years or 1,900 years ago at the time of this writing, at the end of the first century A.D., we need encouragement and faith today. We do. We, we, we have the ups and downs of our own life here within the States, and we have brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ all over the world who suffer persecution and who suffer hardship in ways that we sometimes can't even begin to fathom for the cause of Christ. And these are words that are meant for us. And so I'd like you to I invite you to stand with me as we read this passage together. Before we read Revelation chapter 2 together, I want you to repeat these words of the scripture after me. All right? I'll say it, and then you say it after me. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. The words of Revelation chapter 2 are now what we are going to read. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. Father, we pray that your Spirit would help us to hear and to understand so that we, we may walk in the light of these words from your word. God, it has been written in Revelation 1 that blessing comes upon those who proclaim these words and on those who hear and do them. We want to be people, God, who walk in your blessing. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to set upon the truth you have to teach us. Return us again, God, from wherever we find ourselves today to you, our first love, and to do and to walk in your strength and in your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Together we say, amen. Please be seated. So it's helpful for me, at least, to begin to see where are these churches located. So if you're a geography person, here's where we are. We've got Patmos down in the bottom left-hand part of your screen. There's a yellow box around it. Moving on up the coast of uh, Asia Minor, you've got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. 
basically what it is, is it's kind of an oddly shaped circle. It's the ancient postal route. Um, John is writing, and this goes, to Pat, or goes from Patmos by boat, goes over to the mainland, and then every one of these letters is designed to be read to all of the churches. And so while it says, for example, in our reading today, it says to the, the church at Ephesus, at the end of every one of these letters, it says anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So there is universal reading of this because they're going to find, wow, that, that word is especially powerful for Ephesus or for Smyrna or for Pergamum. And it's going to have a cultural context in there as well. But there's going to be applicational principles that these churches, wherever they find themselves on the postal route, can make with what God is telling his people. And so he describes the churches as a lampstand. In fact, there's two kind of keys that are given here. Um, there, is, there is the word that is translated, or, or not translated, it's the word that's likened to angel. In the latter part of chapter 1, it says um, that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So whenever you see lampstand, think church. Here's an ancient lampstand. Actually, the, one on the, the two on the left are from the first century. The one on the right is from several hundred years before the time of John's writing. So what they would do is they would have lampstands that they would put an oil lamp on, or they might put something else on that would, that would be able to give light. And you wouldn't just put a lampstand down on the floor. You'd want to put it high so the light could go out. And that was God's intention and vision and purpose for the church, that they would take the light of Christ living through them, that their lives would be a lamp, like a lamp set upon a, 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 a stand, or, or like a city set upon a hill, and it would give light, it would, it would shine the light of Christ to the communities and the people and the darkness around them. So we find ourselves here in Ephesus. Here's a, a zoomed-in picture so you can maybe see a little bit better. Patmos is over here. You take a boat ride between Samos and Macale, probably, in there. And you come to the city of Ephesus. One of the things you'll notice is that Ephesus is very close to the water. Um, today, actually, it's about a five-kilometer or 3.1-mile jaunt from the water to Ephesus. But at the time of John's writing, there's actually a harbor that would go up all the way to Ephesus. And this is a very important thing in the ancient world, because if you were near water and you had a harbor, it means you had port access. It means that people who wanted to do trade, people who wanted to communicate, you were the first stop or one of the first stops um, as people come into land. So if you're coming from Greece, which is that way a bit, if you're coming from Athens, for example, you'd come over there, Ephesus. You'd come into the port, you'd unload your goods, and then slowly those goods would make their way further inland. But being a port city has its own challenges as well, because in port cities, there tended to be a lot of raucous behavior, a lot of various sins going on. And so it was a very difficult and sometimes dark place to live. At the time of this writing, the city of Ephesus is probably between 200 and 250,000 people. So about a quarter million people reside in a city. And here, here's what it looks like today. So on the left, that leads to the harbor. There's a street called the Arcadian Way that takes you down all the way into the center of town. 
you have the commercial agora. There's another civic agora over here. And agora is basically a marketplace. It's where things were, were sold and they were bartered for. You also see that there's things like a temple of Olympian and a hippodrome and, and a theater and a marble road. This was a big city. This was an important city. In fact, at the time of the writing, it was the most important city in Asia Minor. Now, it battled for this title with Pergamum. We'll look at Pergamum in two weeks. But it battled for this title with them. But there's a lot of things that happened in this city. Here's an artist rendering that you can see the harbor going down the Arcadian Way. You can see the gymnasium. You can see the Olympian, the Hippodrome, the theater, the Marble Road, the commercial agora. Now you can see the civil agora. And then you have that whole hill there as well. So there's a ton of stuff going on in the culture of ancient Ephesus. Here's a photo taken from the top of the theater. Now, theaters in the ancient world were amazing because usually you did not need um, amplification. Like, I have a microphone on right now. If we were there right now, from what I'm told, I haven't been to this theater, but from, if we were there right now, from what I've been told, I'd be able to stand at the bottom of this, okay? It holds... It holds about 20,000 people. 20 to 25,000 people is what this theater holds. And during a performance or during a meeting, you could be down in the center and you could talk and you would be able to hear me just fine because of the natural acoustics. It's fascinating. And when we look at Pergamum in two weeks, there's an amazing theater there that's built on the side of a hill. It's like the steepest theater in all of the ancient world. It's just crazy. So here's the theater. Now, the theater is an important thing because it's where people gather. It's where they, it's where they engage in uh, plays or they engage in the arts. There's also things that happen in the theater like um, revolts, right? If you were to go, and later today I encourage you to do this, go to Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. What you find is that Paul is there in those texts and and. There's an uproar that begins, and it's happening in this theater. There's a whole bunch of people there who are um, uh, workers who make idols to, for example, the goddess um, Artemis or the goddess Diana. It's, it's, it's the same goddess, just two different names. And they're mad because they see Christianity as a threat to their power and to their authority in that context. Where that erupts is right here, all right? They're saying, Paul, don't go out there. Someone is able to quiet the crowd down and be able to speak and say, we can't have this meeting here because we're causing an uproar and everything just kind of calms down. Paul ends up leaving, but here's where that happens. And so there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a clash of faith and there's a clash of religion going on in this area. Besides the temple... To Artemis, and here's a, a rendering of what it would have looked like. Artemis or Diana is the goddess of fertility. This is the place where they would go and they would worship her. All right, one of, this is the chief god or goddess, lowercase g, of Ephesus, and this was a brilliant building at its time. This is four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. If you've seen that, or if you've been there, or if you've been to the replication of it down in the Nashville area. Four times the size of that. And people are coming to give their gifts and to give their offerings and to engage in temple, all sorts of stuff. Um, not only do they worship 
Artemis. They also worship Caesar, all right? They, they, they worship many, many gods in this area. And, and in fact, the culture, the religious culture of the ancient period was one that was very polytheistic. In other words, they had many gods, and their worship in, involved every part of their life. There was no such thing as, here's my sacred life, and here is my secular life. Here is my church life, and here is my not church life. For them, it was all wrapped in to one. So things like politics, religion, philosophy, math, economics, and ethics, all these things were permeated by the gods, lowercase g with an s on the end, right? To be a part of the Ephesian community meant that you were engaging in all this different kind of worship. And you were giving allegiance to the things that all the people around you said, you have to give allegiance to that, and to that, and to that, and to that. Enter Christianity. The message of Christianity is that there is not God, there is one God. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You could translate that. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Both ways are good. There's not many gods, there is one God. And the question is not, do you serve the gods? The question is, which God do you serve? And for Paul and for the Ephesian believers, they've been called out of darkness. They've been called out of, out, out of a way in walking in sin and rebellion and all this against God. And they've experienced the amazing grace of God, which brings them freedom from sin, which brings them power for living. So much so that what kicked off this riot that happened right here was that they had over 50,000 pieces of silver that came, sorry, not, they didn't have over 50,000 pieces of silver. They sold all their occultish materials and their books that they engaged in reading in that were for pagan worship, and they didn't just sell them, they actually burned them, worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And they basically said, we don't care what this is worth, we serve one God who has met us with his grace and who has redeemed us by his love. So much so that it changed a lot of the culture of Ephesus because you have all these idol makers that go, wait a second, what's going to happen if people turn to Yahweh and they stop buying my religious goods for Artemis or for Diana? It was a, it was a permeating religion and out of this, there were these Jesus followers that said, we serve one God. He alone is God. He alone is worthy of our worship and our praise because he has met us in our desperate need for salvation. This was the message that changed their life. The gospel that Jesus died and rose again and that he came to give them life and that they were to be rooted and grounded in him and dependent on him for living this message changed the way they lived. And this is what the Ephesian culture experienced in a very strong way. Notice what it says here as John writes this letter. It says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, the word angel here is the word angelos. Can you say angelos? Angelos. It's basically the Greek word for angel. Like, they just, they just transliterated it. it. 
sometimes has been described as uh, the, because it says right to the angel of the church, some people understand the word angelos to be messenger or envoy. That is a good translation of it. Some people think that it is a, the pastor of the local church. Some people think it is a divine uh, being, or not divine being, but an angelic being who, whom guards the local church. My personal opinion is that I don't think it refers to the pastor of the church because typically at the first century, we see a plurality of church leadership in that context and in that culture. I think it's talking about, and Pastor Tom and I were talking about this this morning, I think it likely is talking about how there are angels who look out for churches. We, we see, for example, in Daniel, Tom made this great point this morning, in Daniel, there's an angel that looks out for the people of Israel. I don't know how it all works in the heavenlies. But there's, I think, a messenger here. There's an angel here who looks over the city of the, or the church at Ephesus. And, it, and God is communicating through this writing to the angel and to the church. And he's saying, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The one, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. The, the one who holds these stars, the, these angels in his hand. The one who walks among these lampstands. Again, lampstand means church. Yes, yes, I heard it, a couple out there. Lampstand means church. So, so God is walking amongst his church. He knows his church. He knows them intimately. He knows their struggles. He knows their joys. He knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. He says, the one who holds these in his right hand, right hand is often a symbol of power in Scripture, and who walks among these seven golden lampstands says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. He's commending them. He is saying, I know this about you. In these letters, we're going to often find uh, the destination to whom it's written to. Then we're going to often find a commendation. He's gonna, the, the Lord's going to communicate something. Here's what you're doing, and you're doing really well at it. And that's what he's saying here. He's like, he's like, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. In other words, the Ephesians know their doctrine. They, they understand what it looks like for someone to come in and to preach Christ in a way that is not true. They know what it's like to see heresy come in and they root it out and they solve that right there. They care deeply about doctrine. He says, I know this about you. And he's commending them for it. I know this about you. He also says in verse 3, you possess endurance and you have tolerated many things because of my name and you have not grown weary. Just think of how weary sometimes you may have felt. They've followed Christ in a very pagan culture, day after day after day. I think this is probably written somewhere around 95 AD, and so it's been about 30-ish years since the church was really fully firmly established in Ephesus, 30 plus years and so they've lived basically a whole generation. And he's saying, man, the time in which you've grown from here to here, you have kept the faith. You have not grown weary. You've kept doing what's right. Good job. I think he could say, keep it going. Because doctrinal purity matters. 
It especially matters in the middle of a cultural context where the first thing to go sometimes is, oh, you can compromise on that. Oh, it's okay. That won't be a big deal. Doctrinal purity matters. It matters for the church because if you lose the truth of God taught to his people, hard to rebound when you have a, uh, an interchange of truth that happens so frequently that you don't know what's true anymore. Truth matters. He's commending them. But he says, you possess endurance. You've tolerated many things for my name. You haven't grown weary. So they've taken some personal shots here too. They, they, they've endured. They've remained strong during this season. So there's a commendation. But now we have a correction that comes, right? He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Your translation might say, you have abandoned your first love. When Paul came to pastor this church, and, and Paul spent three years at Ephesus, Timothy spent several years at Ephesus um, pastoring there. The Apostle John also spent several years pastoring at Ephesus. In fact, probably from about 75 AD until the end of John's life, except for when he was in exile, John was one of the pastors of this church. He's saying, you've forgotten your first love. John knows this church well. The Lord Jesus knows this church well. Here are the words that Paul wrote to the Ephesians several years before. He says, I pray, and this is part of his prayer for the Ephesian church, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, all right, they're firmly in, established and rooted in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. He's basically saying, this is my prayer for you. I want you to know how vast the love of God is. And to know the Messiah's love that passes, or that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer for these believers, way back when, was that they would know God's love, that they would walk in God's love, that they would be rooted in God's love. This is core for them as a church. It's core for all of us as followers of Jesus to be rooted and grounded, not just in the truth of God, but in God's love. God's indescribable love. God's gift of love. God's love that says to us, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That kind of love. Paul wants them to be rooted and grounded in this truth. And he's essentially saying, you used to have this love. You, you walked out of this love at first, but you're not there now. Somewhere along the way in the life cycle of this church, as it happens with many churches, doctrinal purity keeps going. We know the right things. We make sure that they're written in ink and that they're stamped and that they're never moved, which is good. But along the way, you can have orthodox belief and a loss of love. And you don't walk in the way God intended for us to walk. You could think of it this way. When Jesus gives the church a mission, he gives them both the right teaching so that we're grounded in the truth, but he gives us the way in which to walk, and that's by his Spirit. 
And when we walk by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of love, we, we have our hearts transformed. We have our hearts challenged because a lot of the things that you and I do sometimes are, aren't out of love. And maybe I should define love. We, we studied this a few weeks ago. But, but love, the Apostle Paul writes, if I could do all these things in 1 Corinthians 13, but if I do not have love, I'm like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Jesus writes, um, or not Jesus writes, but Jesus says to his disciples in those last weeks of his life, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He says, by this, meaning by love, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I find it instructive that Jesus does not say, they'll know you're my disciples because you believe what's right. All right, believing what's right is very important. He says, they'll know you're my disciples because of the love you have for one another. How you walk out my teaching is essentially what he is saying. Paul's prayer, I want you to be rooted and firmly established in love. Let all you do be done with love. And John is writing to this church through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, you've lost the love you had at first. I think that love you had at first comes in two different directions. It has a vertical direction, and it has a horizontal direction. The vertical direction is they've lost the wonder that God met them in their sin and came down to rescue them, and that the most important thing in their life is this loving, growing relationship with a God who loved them even when we were sinners. Christ died for us. But naturally, the love relationship that we have with God, which begins here in a personal walk, always must extend to those around us. They will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. They've lost the priority of love, which means they've lost a vertical relationship. Not lost in the sense of like, they don't have it anymore, but, but it's become second, second seat. It's become on the back burner. And instead... This is broken, so this becomes broken, and now it's all about, we just have to make sure we're right on everything. Not that we have a doctrine that also walks in love. This is the message to these believers. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it describes how Israel is walking away from God. And in verse 2, Jeremiah uses some language And he says, I remember when you loved me like a bride at first. There's this marriage analogy that's often used between the people of Israel and God. And and he's saying, there was a loyalty of your youth where you trusted me, where where I was all you needed. And and you think about the story of the Exodus, when when God comes to redeem his people out of Egypt. They, They trust God. Now they complain a little bit along the way, but they literally left a society, to follow God across a desert into what God would lead them into. And God is essentially saying, you, you, you've lost that trust, and you've lost that walk, and you've lost that, that daily um, practice of remembering that I am all you need. You've lost that exclusive devotion to me. In a world where there was the temple of this and the temple of that, and the temple to him and the temple to her, they were used to worshiping many gods. 
It, it was commonplace to find this worship of many gods. It was commonplace to accept every worldview as valid. And what John is saying here is, is keep on having good doctrine. Don't accept every worldview as valid because they're not all the same. But return to the love you had at first. Return to your first love. He says this, but I, verse 4, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. And then in verse 5, he tells them what to do. Now there's three imperatives in verse 5. The imperative, remember, repent, and do. Okay, those are all imperatives. In, my, in other words, do this. Um, and the first one is remember. Here's a church that had neglected their priorities. They, they, they'd placed their focus on right thinking and missed that they need to have right thinking and they need to have a right relationship and walk with God and walk with each other. And he says, remember. Remember how far you have fallen. The, the word remember here brings back to their mind, go back to the moment in which you first encountered my love and my grace. Go back to the moment in which you recognized that you were far from God and that God stepped into this world to redeem you. Go back to that love you had at first, that love that you had when you received me as your Savior and you accepted my gift of salvation through Jesus and you said, I'm all in Jesus. Uh, do you remember that moment? Do you remember that moment in your life if you're a follower of Jesus here where you're a new believer and you're just going, oh my goodness, I never knew this about God. And oh, oh my goodness, I, God loves me. One of the things that can happen in our spiritual lives is we become calloused over time towards the simple truths of the gospel that change lives. So we can have right doctrine about certain things, but we can miss the boat on other things and forget that God loved us even when we were sinners. And we can forget that God loved other people even when they were sinners. We, we can forget that we are acceptable to God. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are acceptable to God. We don't have to meet a performance standard. We don't have to measure up. We don't have to check a mark to say, now God, you love me because I, I caught up on my Bible reading, which I'm not caught up yet on. True confessions, right? You confess your sins one to another. I'm not caught up in my Bible reading. A couple days behind. God still loves me. God still meets me where I am. We don't have to measure up because Christ has measured up. All we have to do is say, Lord, I'm yours. Would you remind me what it means to walk in the light of your truth today? Would you remind me what it means of how you loved me at first is how I'm called to love one another? Paul's prayer is that they would be rooted and grounded in this love. He wants everything to be built with a good foundation from love, the love of Christ, to be built up as his people. But he says, remember, go back to the beginning. Remember how far you've fallen. But then he says, repent, repent. Now, the word repent literally means to turn or to return. It, it means to have a change of mind. And, and with a change of mind comes necessarily a change of action. The idea of repentance in the Hebrew Bible it, is, it, it's actually very, um, it's a very visual symbol. Whenever a king or someone would repent, they would often tear their clothes. 
Here's an image of a prophet tearing his garments. And it's reminiscent of Joel chapter 2 where it says, Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn to Yahweh, your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. See, when we repent, sometimes the word repent can be repent, you know, and it becomes like this, this word that's used as a tool for beating someone down. Repentance is always an invitation. It's, it's an invitation to think the way God thinks about this. Don't think the way Jeremy thinks about this, because sometimes I think the wrong things. And notice here, it's, it's rend your heart not your garments. What matters most to God is not whether in repentance a prophet would rend their garments. The garments was just a sign of his brokenness before God, his dependence upon God. And so the the call to repent is a call to go back to a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. The word loving kindness there is the word chesed. Can you say chesed? Chesed. Your Hebrew is very good this morning. Say it one more time. Chesed. It means, very good over there. Very good. It means loving kindness. It means grace. It means the steadfast love of God. It's the kind of way God loves. God only knows how to love all in. It's how he loves. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He only knows how to love all in. All in. Love as we talked about a few weeks ago, is a decision. It's an act of the will to bring to bear all the resources you have to meet the needs of someone else without accepting or expecting anything in return. To love God first, to love God means that God has first loved us. When God showed his love for us, it was all in. It was without expecting anything in return. And so we can receive it, but then as we seek to love, we need to love with the same way. And there's only one way to love that way, and that's love comes from God. Anyone who's been born of God knows God because God is love. God is at his very essence a loving God. He's also just, he's also holy, he's also merciful. All those things work in a great, you know, balancing act. But God loves perfectly. God loves intentionally. But we often have our priorities misplaced. This last week, we've spent a lot of time at baseball fields. Um, any baseball players out here? Okay, maybe just a couple. Uh, baseball fields. We've been doing a lot of baseball lately. And one of the amazing things you get to learn as you go to different baseball fields is you get to see how fans interact. You get to see how parents interact. You get to see how players interact, coaches and umpires, right? There's a whole lot going on on a baseball field, and it's fascinating just to watch, and sometimes it's uh, convicting to just having to check your heart during very intense uh, plays. So we're at a baseball field this week, and we had a couple of different experiences. One of the experiences we had was at one baseball field, we're gathered around, my son's playing a team, and they're doing really well. They end up losing the game in extra innings, right? Like, oh, we're so close. Another game we were at, they ended up losing in extra innings again. Oh, so close. But as we're gathering around that field, there's different ways to engage in the game. See, here's one of the ways we misplace our priorities. We're there for a game. Right? We're, we're there to have fun. We're there to grow in our skill. And in fact, when, when our kids start this young with a game, we're just happy when they hit the ball. 
Like, we're, we're happy when the coach pitch gets over the plate and they make a contact. We're, we're happy to see these small little guys and gals play and succeed. As they get older, we're like, beat them, crush them down. I mean, not that you would say that or anything like that. As they get older, we see a, a, a ball come in, and it's called a strike, and we go, you've got to be kidding me. Not that I would ever do this. Um, we get to see how parents interact with their kids. We get to see how coaches either build up their kids or they either beat down their kids, not in a physical way, but in like an emotional way, like, oh, you should have done that better. Oh, that was bad. Get back out there. You know, like you get to see a bunch of different things. Return to the love you had at first. When, when you come into the game as a young one, you're just there to have a good time and there to not hopefully hit someone with your bat, right? Like, we're just like, be safe, have fun. As you get older, you misplace your priorities, though. Down here, you're like, yeah, we're all here. We're cheering on everybody. Over here, we've got parents on this side who are mad because of a call. We've got parents on that side who are mad because of a call. And the kids are in the middle, and the coaches are in the middle, and here's what I saw this last week. There was one game that we lost, and the, we lost it in like, it, it was just, I say we as in like I wasn't actually on the field. I had no part except for cheering to play in this, okay? Um, they did an amazing job. Our kids did an amazing job playing, and we just lost on a, on a hit that scored a couple, and the catcher, our catcher, got knocked over with a runner coming in to the plate. It was the game-winning hit. The other team erupts. About five seconds later, the coach notices, their coach notices, wait a second, the player on the other team is down. And this, this, this was a team that loved to rejoice and to celebrate, was very vocal, very happy, and all this kind of stuff. As they celebrated, they saw that this kid was down, and that coach was the first one. The other team's coach was the first one to say, everybody be quiet, take a knee. Here's a coach who didn't forget the importance of the thing at first. You're not there to just win a game. You're there to be with people. He, he didn't misplace his priority and say, you know what, it's all about winning. He went back to what mattered most. That kid's on the ground, that kid is hurt, we're going to take a knee, we're going to make sure he's okay. We went to another game. We also lost that game. Uh, it was a very different experience. It was a very... Uh, what's the word I want? Energetic experience. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of interesting comments made. One of the things that became very clear by the end of the by the end of the game is that it seemed it seemed that the coach in the other city cared a lot more about winning the game than about how they treated the players. They cared much more about trying to finagle every rule that they possibly could and trying to get away with as much as they possibly could in order to get a W at the end of the day. Kids, if you're in, if you're in sports, I think it's an incredible character-building tool because I don't know about you, but my emotions get in the game. I'm cheering. I'm clapping. I'm trying to encourage our guys, but sometimes I can get into the, ooh, that was a bad call. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm... <coughs> I don't want to be that person, but sometimes it just riles up within me. We can misplace our priorities. 
We, we can get so far down the path that we forget why we were there. We're there to enjoy time together. We're there to learn and grow in a skill and a sport. We're there to encourage one another because people matter more than the score at the end of the game. John is writing to a church, and he's essentially saying, look, you've lost the most important thing. You have the doctrine. You've got the rules of the game. You're walking in that. Good. Keep doing that. Make sure you know what a ball on a strike is and all that kind of stuff. But in the midst of that, don't forget your first love. Don't forget the love that you had at first. Go back to the reason why God stepped into humanity. It's because he cared about people. He cared about you. He cared about me. He calls us to be in a, love, in a relationship with him based upon his grace. And, and then he calls us to then love our neighbor as ourselves. Sometimes, even in the church, we can get so far down the path of misplacing our priorities that we forget that we are here for people. Here are some ways that we misplace our priorities. We can have good doctrine and biblical truth and miss the fruit of the Spirit that God wants to develop in and through us to be lights that shine in the darkness. We can have biblical values sometimes without authentic faith. And I, I'm thankful for people who, who understand biblical values, who, who know it's not good to murder someone, who know it's not good to steal, who know it's not good to, to speak slanderously against someone. I'm, I'm thankful that there are people who don't know Jesus who have a certain moral compass in them for that. But we can uphold um, the values of a church without actually having a relationship with Jesus. We, we can. We, we can walk in this truth and miss the revelation of God to us that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that Jesus not only wants to have us walk in truth, he wants to actually walk and live through us for the purpose of bringing glory to his name and bringing the gospel to the nations. But it begins with a personal relationship with Jesus. And some people, we, we've grown up in the church and we know what's right and we know what's wrong, but we don't know the one who said, this is right and this is wrong in a very personal, intimate way. We can also misplace our priorities by having hatred of people. Even if we disagree with someone, and there's a lot that I disagree with in the culture in which we live in today. Even if we disagree with someone, it's never a cause to hate a person. And where we find that we are struggling in a relationship with a person, um, Scripture says in Romans 12, or sorry, Romans 13, as far as it is possible with you, live at peace with all people. Living at peace is sometimes hard though, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is. But it's what God calls us to. It doesn't mean that we'll always have a reconciled relationship because that takes two people. But as far as possible with us, as God works in and through us, we're to be people of peace. And yet, sometimes disagreements bubble up into things that are huge. God wants to step into the middle of that. And he wants to reframe our priority centered around love. Another way that we can misplace our priorities is we can be very, very task-centered and miss the people. Right? Both are important. I, I need task people in my life because that's how we get stuff done. <laughs> Right? It, it, in a very practical way. Hey, did you check this? Yes. Did you check this? Yes. If we did not have task-centered people, I would go on vacation and probably forget half of our kids' clothes. My wife is very good about going, check, yep, we've got that, yep, we've got that, yep, we've got that. She's very good at that. 
I'm like, let's hop in the car and head out. We're good. We'll figure it out as we go. We need this balance of task, task people and people-centered people. But we can't be so task-centered that we forget that ministry is about people. When Jesus came, he did not give his life to save tasks. He gave his life for people. We have to return to the why of why we do stuff. And I think that's what John's getting at here in this letter. Jesus wants his church in Ephesus to understand why, why did I call you to be a light that shines in a dark world? And he wants them to reignite by going back and returning, by, by remembering from where they've fallen, repenting from where they are, and saying, God, would you change my heart? God, would you change my mind to think the right thoughts about this person, about this situation, and to walk in the truth? And then he says, at the end of this, he says, and I want you to do the works that you did at first. Re repentance is about a change of mind, but as I said, repentance means that I have a change of mind to the point where my actions begin to follow what I now believe. Sometimes we can agree with truth and we can say, yes, that's true, but then we go and do something different. To really experience repentance in its fullest form is to say, God, I, I, I've, I've, I've missed this. I, God, I, I need to return to my first love. God, I need to walk again in your truth and I need to do the things you've called me to do. But this action of doing is never, I must pull up my own bootstraps and walk this out in my own strength. Because the love that they were called to at first is a life-giving love from Jesus. It, it's an empowering love from Jesus that says, look, wh where you go, I'm going to empower you by my spirit, the book of Acts says, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utter ends of the earth. It's going to be a walking in and by the spirit that is going to lead to a right vision of life. So how do we get back to right things? Well, remember, this ongoing, this ongoing practice of remembering the story of how God redeemed us. The, the hymn came to me this, more, this morning. Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweeter than ever was heard. The chorus goes, um, tell me the story of, I can't remember how the chorus goes. It blanked from my mind. Someone will remind me afterwards. I'll look it up in the hymnal afterwards. But it's this idea of continually remembering what Christ has done for me. And what Christ has done for you. And walking in light of that truth. But then re re repenting and having our mind checked with what is true. Returning to God's path. And doing the works and being rooted and established in love. Briefly here. We'll talk about the Nicolaitans in two weeks when we study Pergamum. But the Nicolaitans, I think... It's a group that we don't know much about, but what I think they are are cultural compromisers. They're people who have said, it's okay to do that, it's okay to do that, it'll be all good, even though it goes against the teaching of God's Word. We'll look at that with Balaam and with Balak in a couple weeks with Pergamum, but he commends them on that. He tells them to repent because otherwise, if they don't repent and they return— He's going to remove their lampstand from its place. In other words, the effectiveness of the church is not going to be what God designed for it to be. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples, you are a city on a hill. You are a city on a hill. You are a people who give light to the darkness. He says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. They may see what you do and they may praise your Father in heaven. 
His desire for this Ephesian church is to be one who walks in the light of God's truth and the power of God's spirit. And when they do that, they shine brightly because they're reflecting the Lord who came for them. Verse 7, he says this, anyone who has an ear should listen. The word here for listen is, um, is a word which means to listen, to hear, to obey. Uh, to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He ends with this. He says, I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. He, he ends this with a, with, with a promise. And, and he says, I'll give the victor. Now, now, who is the one who is a victor? Right? A victor does not happen because, look, Jesus, at what I've done. A victor is someone who has experienced life in Christ who has come to Jesus and received his forgiveness for their sins, who is a, a believer. And here's the promise to them. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. There was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here's a photo of a, a kind of a mosaic of, a, of the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, their ability to eat from the tree of life was cut off. So much so that the Lord placed an angel at the entryway to the garden so that they couldn't come back and take of it. Because sin, their sin, had separated them from, from God. And they couldn't eat of that. In the end of the book of Revelation, we get this picture that in the new city, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth, there's a garden. And there's trees. And there's a tree of life that believers will eat from. People who have trusted Jesus with their sin, people who have given their lives to him and said, I, 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 can't, I, I can't make it on my own. God, I, I need you. The picture that Revelation completes for us within the scripture is the story in Genesis 1 begins in a garden, no sin. Sin enters the world. We're fast-forwarding a whole bunch. Jesus, all that matters too. We're just fast-forwarding a whole bunch. Jesus comes, he, he makes salvation possible. He makes redemption possible through his perfect life, through his uh, being the spotless lamb, sacrificial lamb. And at the end of the age, when sin is judged and the wicked are cast out of the presence of God, followers of the Lord are returned to a garden to eat from the tree of life. He says, I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. The word paradise here is related to the word for garden in the Hebrew Bible. What God began way back here, God brings back in fullness over here as he does his redemptive work. The question for the Ephesian church is this. Have you lost the love you had at first? Have you lost the way in which you related to God back when you were saved? And it may be here today that you're not a follower of Jesus, and if you're not, I'd love to talk with you, and I'd love to show you how you too can trust Jesus today. But, but maybe for some of you today, you need to say, God, would you remind me of the love that you have for me at first? Would you remind me amidst the guilt I feel, amidst the shame I feel, amidst the pride I may have, that you loved me so much that you sent your son, your only son, the one whom you love, to die in my place. 
so that I could have life. God, would you return us to our first love, yourself. Father and our King, we pause right now just to be reminded, God, that you love us. Scripture reminds us that the greater love, love has, has, is fully expressed in laying down one's life. And God, we thank you for how you laid down your life for us. How you did not consider your own pride or your own glory something to be used to your own advantage, but you emptied yourself, Jesus. You became nothing, and you humbled yourself, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You humbled yourself, and you became obedient to death and even death on a cross. God, you are exalted above all. It's going to be at the name of Jesus one day that everyone will bow and confess that you are Lord, but God, we want to do that today. We want to be reminded again today of who you are and what you have done. So that, Father, our lives might be a light that shines amidst the dark world. So that, God, people may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. So that, God, we have a right view of ourselves in your eyes. Lord, we cannot love without you first loving us. And we cannot love one another without your spirit living and working through us. Lord, some of us today, we need you to show us exactly the things we are holding on to, the lies that we are believing that are keeping us from walking in your truth. God, would you reveal to each person here the truth that they need to see for their own life today so that they may learn to love you more fully and to love one another as you have loved us. God, may it be that way in our marriages, may it be that way in our families, may it be that way in our workplaces, in our church, and even on our baseball fields. May we look at people with the love of Christ. May we have our priorities rightly ordered according to your heart and according to your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.